The, the 2023 uh, mortality stats uh, have come in, and uh, they're, they're quite uh, striking. Um, whether you're, you're reading information from the World Health Organization or Health Canada or the CDC down in the States, it doesn't matter. All the results are the same, and it's striking. It's the same for all people and at all places. Let, let, me, let me show you what I mean. Here's a, here's a bar graph. Here's the mortality rate. Striking, isn't it? Let me, let me show it to you in, in a line graph. Here's, here's, a, here's a, see, yeah. And uh, you know, just for variety's sake, just look at it from different angles. Here's a pie graph. You see, it all started in the passage that Tanisha read for us in uh, Genesis chapter 5. At the very end, chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Then all the days of Adam, the, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And keep reading with me in verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after, he's, after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, say it with me, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Canaan lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. After Jared, lived, Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Here's what we learn in Genesis chapter 5, that the warning that God gave in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, where he said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. The warning that God gave came true, that God's word is true. What else can we learn? We can learn that the serpent is a liar because the serpent said, you will surely not die. And Genesis 5 is just a reminder of the reality that came into the world as a result of sin. Uh, theologically speaking, in Romans chapter 5, of verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's David, sorry, that's Adam, wrong book, wrong time, sorry. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the title for today's message is just simply this, and he died. You see, here's, here's the truth, loved ones. You won't truly learn to live until you accept the reality that you will die. 
People who truly live life to the fullest are the ones who understand that one day they are going to die. That, that good living comes, a re, comes as a result of having a healthy understanding of death. Understanding death is the key to understanding life. And in this passage, we're going to see that human sinfulness is rampant. And that's the reason why there is death, but that God's faithfulness is so evident. We won't live well until we understand that we're going to die. So today I want to share with you a five things to remember before you die. Uh, five things to keep uh, in mind, keep sort of on the, the forefront of your thinking because we are all going to die. Five things to remember before you die. Here's the first one. Remember that you as a human being bear the image of God. You bear the image of God. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. The book of the generations. That, that's one Hebrew word. Uh, the word is toledot. And uh, in our Bibles, in Genesis, we have 50 chapters. But Moses uses this word toledot to divide the book of Genesis into 10 sections. He uses toledot 10 times and is translated, these are the generations. This is how the, the book of Genesis is broken down. The generations of heaven and earth. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, we have Adam. And at the end of the passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to see the beginning of the generations of Noah. And then the sons of Noah and Shem. And on it goes. The book of Genesis is written very intentionally and methodically. And this word toledot, generations of... Uh, tells us when we're starting a new section. So this, uh, this passage here lays out the, the family tree of the line of Seth. So the last time we were in Genesis, we looked at the line of Cain and all the descendants going down to, to Lamech, who was a polygamist and a violent, vengeful uh, person. And then we are introduced now in Genesis 5 to the descendants of uh, Seth. Now, one of the things that's really going to strike you here is the, the length of the, the, the lifespan of these uh, individuals. You've got people living 300, 400, 900 years. It, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Adam lived 930 years. Seth lived 912 years. Uh, Methuselah, 969 years there at the end. What's, what's remarkable here is that when you look at where, when Noah was born, everyone was still on earth, except Adam, because we were just told he died, and well, Enoch, we'll, we'll get to him a little bit later, but 10 generations, like you were holding in your arms, your, not just your grandchild, but your, not just your great-grandchild, but your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchild. Imagine that. Imagine the different grunts and groans these old men would make, you know? <laughs> I can't tie my shoes without grunting. I'm sore all the time. What, what would it have been like to be 770? I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. 
And why is it that they were able to live for so long? I mean, the Bible doesn't give us a clear explanation, but we have a hint in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 5, when it said that God hadn't sent rain on the earth yet. This is sort of the pre-flood atmosphere. Theologians call it the antediluvian times. If you want to impress someone at a dinner party, you just use the term antediluvian. It means people who lived before the flood. The idea is that there were the, the atmosphere was very different. That it was sort of like this rainforest atmosphere where people and animals and creatures grew and lived longer. And that's why the dinosaurs grew so big all before the flood. That's one, uh, that's one uh, explanation of how that, how that took place. The other interesting thing here is you look at a guy like Methuselah who lived 969 years. He outlived his son Lamech by five years. He almost got to a a thousand. But all of these individuals bear the image of God. Look at verse one with me. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, Moses is being very intentional here. He's, he's, he's doing a callback. He's referring to all that was explained in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, the idea of being created in the image of God and the likeness of God and created male and female. And so what... what What Moses is reminding us of under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, yes, Genesis 3 happened and that was a mess. And yes, Genesis 4 happened and Cain killed Abel and all the descendants of Cain were were horrible, ruthless people and and it climaxed with, with Lamech. But all these individuals, let's just remember, they're all created in the image of God. And they're all created in his likeness and they're all created male and female. We need to keep that in mind, when we see our world spinning out of control, when we see people, people in leadership positions or people in our family or people in the government or people in entertainment or people in education that are making decisions that we know are so harmful and so destructive, not only to themselves, but to society, we also need to understand and keep in mind that those people are image bearers and need to be treated with dignity and with respect. So Moses is is reviewing the reality, the truth that every human being is made in the image of God. And then verse 3, it says, When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. Seth, I guess, looked like Adam. He, he, he resembled him. He was according to his likeness. And so this idea of a father fathering a son and the similarities between father and son gives us a little bit of hint as to what Genesis 1 means in terms of being made in God's image. We, we are here to, to reflect who God is and to really inherit what God has created. We were created to fill the earth and to subdue it, to have dominion over it. So that's Adam's little summary of his life and the birth of Seth. And then it carries on to Seth in verse 6, and then Enosh in verse 9, and Canaan in verse 12. And as you read it, it seems sort of like, uh, like there's a formula, and because there actually is. Uh, this is, 
All of Genesis 5 flows like this. When father's name lived X years, he fathered son's name. Father's name lived father's, and he fathered son's name Y years and had another, other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of father's name were X plus Y years, and he died. You can just, pl- you can just plug it in. That's how Genesis 5 works. And what, what we see here is, is I mean, there's, there's no details about any of these people. We, we don't know what, what Canaan did. Maybe he invented something. Maybe he fought a great battle. Maybe he rescued someone from danger. We, we don't know any of the good things he did. We don't know any of the bad things he did. But we know that he fathered somebody. <laughs> and then the, the list goes on. We don't know any details about these people. But, but what we do know is that they brought up children. And... Uh, I want to speak just primarily to the parents right now, but this is also a word for all of us. Ultimately, what we will be remembered for are the children that we raise. The children that so often we just, you know, we throw them a tablet so we can get our work done. The work that no one will remember And 50 years from now, no one will even know who you are, but they'll know your son or your daughter. The son or your daughter who you need to regularly look in their face and look them in the eyes. Our youngest son, Bo, used to do this adorable thing, but it was so convicting. When he was two or three years old, he would sort of get on his knees on a chair and we'd be at the table and I'd be on my phone or in a book and he would touch my chin and turn it towards me. Just reach out and say, please pay attention to me. Because truth be told, and he died, it's going to be true of Ted. I don't know when, you know, could be 40 years from now, 50 years from now, who knows? No one's going to remember Ted, but Bo will still be alive. And what I invest into Bo is ultimately what is going to matter. And you may not have children, or your children may already be adults, but that doesn't mean that you cannot invest in the next generation. It clearly, it is important, this idea of carrying on the faith. What is being described here are, is not just the physical offspring of Seth, Notice how the genealogy, it's just straight down. It doesn't branch out at all. It says other sons and daughters. But what is being described is, is these are the ones who carried the faith down through the generation. How seriously are we as parents and we as a church family taking the responsibility of passing on the faith of our fathers to the next generation? Are we doing that? Are we investing time and energy in pouring into the next generation? Because it's really just a matter of time before everyone forgets who we are. You might know a few things about your great-grandparents, but much beyond that, how much do you know about your great-great-grandfather or grandmother? What about your great-great-great? But if you come from a Christian heritage, you, you probably know that they believed in God and that they passed on the gospel 
to the next generation. And that needs to be a major focus of our lives. Five things to remember before you die. The first one is we bear the image of God. The second one is that you can walk with God. That you can walk with God. The formula in verse 21 gets broken. You have, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he lived this long, and he had these sons and daughters, and he died, and he died. But in verse 21, the formula is broken. This guy named Enoch, verse 21, when Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And this, this is where the pattern breaks. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. He took him. Now let's look at our family tree again. Enoch is the seventh generation. Remember we talked about Lamech, this polygamous, violent, vengeful person who wrote songs about his violence and his sexual immorality. He was the seventh generation of Cain. He's sort of the culmination. Remember, seven is a number of completion. He's the culmination of what living like Cain leads to. And then Enoch, he's the seventh generation. And Enoch walked with God. Enoch is described in, in, in Hebrews 11, verse 5 and 6, says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Enoch walked with God, and that walk was a walk of faith. He walked in faith. Now, for the original audience, remember Moses is writing to these rescued slaves who are wandering through the wilderness on the way to the, to the promised land. And he's recording these stories to them. Now, he, they would have in mind this next passage, Leviticus chapter 23, where God says, if you walk... If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And then God says, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. God's relationship with Israel was supposed to be like his relationship with Enoch. God wanted to walk with them. He wanted them to walk with him. And what was true for Israel and what was true for Enoch is true for us. We are called to walk with God. The primary metaphor for describing the Christian life in the New Testament is the idea of walking. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk by faith and not by sight. As you, as you receive the Lord, continue to walk in him. Here at, at Hope Church, we, we talk about discipleship in, in terms of four major commitments that our, our church is committed to worshiping Jesus, walking with Jesus, working for Jesus, and witnessing about Jesus, and doing that in a way that's biblical, relational, and prayerful. That, that's a summary of really what our church is all about. Worship, walk, work, and witness. Biblical, relational, and prayerful. But walking is such a key part walking with the Lord. Are you walking with the Lord? 
That, that wherever you go, he's going with you. Do you know that he is with you? Do you know that he is watching? And as you're walking, are you letting him talk to you? And are you talking to him? We're called to walk with the Lord like Enoch. In every area of our life. The Christian life is not just a Sunday morning thing. It's not just a morning devotion thing. It's not just a Christian radio on it while we're commuting in our car thing. It is every area of our life, in our working, in our entertainment, in our relationships, in our free time, in our family, that wherever we go, we know that God is going with us, that we are walking with him. Enoch walked with God, and he was for naught, for God took him. No explanation. We, we don't know where he went or how he went. The same is, you know, used to describe um, uh, Elijah uh, in, in the book of 2 Kings uh, as well. So the pattern does break. The 100% death rate, mortality rate, is not completely uh, accurate. Enoch and Elijah somehow, because they walked with God, were taken up. Now, some of you, you're thinking, man, I just wish that would be, be me. Like right now, we say in that song, like hymn of heaven, like let it be today. And you're like, yes, Lord, please today. Please today. Some of you are like Enoch's uh, grandson, uh, Lamech. So verse 25 tells us about Methuselah, who had lived 187 years, and he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This is another break in the genealogy formula. And what this Lamech, again, same name, very different guy. What, what we can learn from this Lamech is that what we need to remember before we die is that we can hope in God. We don't all get to be like Enoch. Wouldn't it just be great? Walk with the Lord and then just be taken up. No more suffering, no more pain, no more relational difficulty, no more hardship. But I love the, the, the forward-looking faith of Lamech here. He has a son. He names him Noah, which sounds like the word rest. And then he says, he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed... This one shall bring us relief. He'll, he'll bring us rest from our work and from our painful toil of our hands. We don't know Lamech's story, but look at the kind of language he's using. Cursed. Painful toil. Lamech was the kind of, I don't know if you, maybe this is you, maybe you have someone who you love or you care about, where it just seems like suffering just gets layered on top of suffering. 
And maybe you're going through that right now and the pressure is just so strong and the darkness is just so deep. You're feeling the way Lamech felt. I'm, the ground is cursed. There's painful toil. I'm in agony over all that I'm facing and struggling with. And if that is you, you fit right into Genesis chapter 5. And you can do what Lamech did. You can place your hope in God. Remember, all of the people in Genesis chapter 5, we're looking back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when God promised that an offspring of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. And so every time a new baby was born, every time a grandchild, a great-great-grandchild, great-great-great-great-great-grandchild was born, the question is, is this going to be the one? And Lamech just had this sense, had this sense of faith. Lamech, who obviously endured much hardship and pain in his life, had this faith that God was going to do something in Noah. Now, Noah didn't end up being the one who was going to crush the head of the serpent. But Noah was obviously going to be greatly used by God. Loved ones, just understand this. Relief is coming. Relief is coming. Rest is coming. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can trust that your, that, 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 that your best days are ahead of you. Because, because God is with you. And even in the midst of your suffering and your struggle, God is with you. You can hope in him. You can hope in him even as wickedness increases. The genealogy rounds out in verse 28 when Lamech had 182, sorry, had lived 182 years. He fathered a son and called his name Noah out of the ground and that the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Verse 30, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. This is what I find so interesting about Lamech. He lived 777 years. I believe that he actually lived 777 years. But there's some strange symbolism about his, like the year that he died. This is the guy who was experiencing so much pain and so much agony, who recognized the curse that, that human beings were living under. And what did he, he, he lived 770, the ultimate number of completion. And then he died. That, that, that what all that he was going through was just enough. It was just complete. It, that his... Of all of the, of all of the lifespans, his was the, his was the lifespan that really is the picture of, of completion. Verse 32 says, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so now the linear, um, oh, oh, here, we've got it on the screen here. Now the, the linear um, uh, family tree spreads out at the bottom just like it did uh, for, uh, for the other uh, Lamech. And we see that as a pattern in Genesis. You have just one son being mentioned, and then at the end, it spreads out into a multiple uh, brothers and, uh, and sisters. So you can hope in God. Now look with me at chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive 
and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So every, every now and again, I just ask a volunteer to come up and to explain a passage. So anyone want anyone to come up and walk us through Genesis chapter 6? All right. So there's, the, the question we got to ask ourselves is, who are the sons of God? What, what is going on here? There's really three major schools of interpretation. The oldest is that they were fallen angels. Ancient rabbis believed this when uh, 300 years before Christ, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek and the Septuagint, they, they translated the term angels. Uh, they translated sons of God angels. Another option is Seth's offspring, the great African uh, theologian. Augustine believed this. Uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin uh, believed this as well. And then the other option is that they were a human kings. Uh, so let, let's just take a quick look at each of these interpretive options. There isn't a whole lot on the line here, okay? If, if, if you don't really understand any of them, that's fine. If, if you disagree with me or disagree with your neighbor, that's fine too. These are not sort of salvation-related uh, issues. But here's the, here's the fallen angels theory. So if, if we're going to interpret sons of God as fallen and angels, that, that means that the daughters of men are... Humans, the sons of God are angels, fallen angels, and the daughters of men are human. Now, the only other time that exact phrase, sons of God, is used in the Old Testament, it's always used to describe fallen angels. Like in Job chapter 1 verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So we, we have this link to, w between the book of Job and the book of Genesis. So as strange as it sounds for there to be angelic beings who were actually impregnating these human women, there, there is a link in terms of that term. Now, there's also all of these New Testament references uh, First Peter, Second Peter, and the book of Jude all describe, they don't explicitly mention a marriage, they don't explicitly mention sexual intercourse, but it describes fallen angels going beyond the, their regular boundaries and being a punished for it. But it doesn't make it explicit a connection. Now, what would this have meant? Again, when we're interpreting the Bible, we got to look at the immediate context. There's no clue in the immediate context that these are fallen angels. Angels have not been mentioned so far in the book of Genesis. So there's no immediate context clue. Then you've got to look in, the, in a biblical context. So we do have the clue from Job chapter 1, verse 6. And then you've got to think about the original audience. Why, why is this in the Bible? It just seems random. Oh, by the way, fallen angels started sleeping with women. Well, there were all of these other myths, right? We, we hear these stories of demigods and gods coming. And maybe Moses is writing this in such a way to say, hey, by the way, all that stuff you hear from your, um, your neighbors who believe in other religions, yeah, some of that's actually true. But those weren't gods. Those were fallen angels. And so steer, steer away from that. So that's the first option. 
It seems the craziest, but it's the oldest interpretation. Like the, the ancient Jewish rabbi scholars, this is what they, what they believed. The, the second option is that they are Seth's offspring. Again, this is Augustine and Calvin uh, and Luther. So the sons of God are the descendants of Seth. And then the daughters of man are the the offspring of Cain. And the the immediate contextual clue is from Genesis chapter 5 earlier, where you have this idea of God creating Adam in the likeness of God, and then Adam having a son in his likeness. There's this idea that Adam is kind of in the likeness of God, therefore he's a son of God, which later in the New Testament gets backed up. In Luke chapter 3, when we have the genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back to Adam and calls Adam the son of God. You also have phrases like Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 1 that says, you are the sons of God. And so you 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 have this interpretation. And so the idea here is that Noah's descendants are the only ones left who who still believe in God. That Cain's descendants have, have... have lured all of the descendants of Seth to, uh, to, to the side of the serpent. Now, for th- what would this mean for the original audience? Is that the other question we've got to ask ourselves? Time and time again, the people of Israel are warned about the dangers of intermarriage, right? Not, not that God is against interracial marriage, but that God is against marrying someone from a different religion, right? And that and so maybe what God is, what Moses is describing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is this warning about, hey, we got we to gotta make sure that we are keeping the faith and passing it down to the next generation. And next generation, by the way, don't compromise. Don't go out missionary dating. But make sure that as you're looking for a spouse, you are looking for someone who is in the Lord, who is in the faith. So that's the, that's the second option. And then the third option is that these are human kings and that the, the daughters of men are also humans. And the, the, the immediate textual link here is that Genesis 6 is about, and the flood is about the judgment of man. God is judging humans. It says every thought and intention of man's heart was only evil. It doesn't mention that there's a judgment about fallen angels. And so the immediate context does lend itself to say, well, we should probably think it's men because this passage is about the sinfulness of men. You also have passages like Psalm 82, 6 and 7, where God is speaking to earthly rulers and judges and saying that they're not judging with, with equity and with justice. And he calls them sons of God, sons of the most high. And again, think about the immediate audience, the original audience. They have just escaped from Egypt. And what did Pharaoh think that he was? He thought he was a God. He thought he was a son of God. And what did Pharaoh do? He gathered lots, any woman he wanted. He had all of these wives. He took as many wives as he wanted. And so maybe this is describing earthly kings who were using oppression to build their own harems and multiplying sexual immorality, which also fits with Lamech. That's what Lamech did. He got it started in chapter 4, and we see it coming to a culmination in chapter 6. 
So then who are the, who are the Nephilim uh, in verse 4? Maybe they're these demigods if they were fallen angels. Maybe they were just giants who were living at that time. Well, regardless, uh, these, these Nephilim, because they appear later in the story as well, these Nephilim are under the judgment of God. And they're not so powerful or so strong that God can't defeat them. So for the original audience, as they were going into the promised land and recognizing that they were going to have to fight the Nephilim, they, they knew, well, listen, God defeated them once. And so he's going to defeat them again. So those are the, those are the three options. I lean just because of the immediate context of Lamech. And the fact that Genesis 6 is not a judgment on fallen angels, but a judgment on men. I lean in actually the human king's uh, option, but there are people far smarter than me that believe in fallen angels or uh, Seth's uh, uh, offspring. And I'm absolutely willing to be, uh, to be convinced otherwise. But even when sin is multiplying, we can have that hope that Lamech had that, uh, that God is going to come through. Look back with me at verse 3. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. God's spirit could symbolize his presence, like chapter 1, verse 2, the spirit hovering over the waters, or it can refer to the breath that God breathed into Adam's mouth, that God wasn't going to allow human beings to have breath for another 120 years. This could be talking about the shortening of lifespan, which happens right after the antediluvian period. Once the flood comes, people start living shorter and shorter. So maybe that's what he's talking about, what, 120 years? We also don't know exactly how long it took Noah to build the ark or when God made this pronouncement, but it could be God's patience in allowing people to repent while Noah built the ark. Now look with me at, at verse 5. It says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Here's the fourth thing I want us to remember or I want you to remember uh, before you die. The fourth thing is this, that your sin can grieve God. Your sin can grieve God. Verse 5 describes the total and utter depravity of humankind. Oh, every intention was only evil. Every and only was evil. And continually, all the time, every thought and intention was only about one thing. And then it says that God regretted in verse 6. Now, the Bible tells us in, uh, in the book of Numbers and in the book of First Samuel that God doesn't re regret the way that we re regret. You know, it's like, I, I, re I really regret investing all of my savings in cryptocurrency, right? Like, that's a, that's a real regret that we have. You know, there's a high school yearbook. Like, I really regret spray paying, spray, spray, hairspraying my bangs like that. I, I really regret having a mullet. You know, these, these sort of, we have certain regrets where we, we do something and we wish we hadn't done it. Th that's not what's being described here. It's not that God is saying, shoot, I wish I didn't get all this thing started with the garden and the Adam and the Eve and the tree. I, 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 wish, I wish I had, that's not what's going on here. It's like when you go to a funeral and you express your regrets, 
or you say, I'm sorry, you're not confessing to homicide in that moment. You're not taking responsibility for that person's death. You're not regretting that you, you didn't have anything to do with it. But you're saying you're sorry. You're saying, you're saying my, my, I pass on my regrets to you and to your family. It's expressing sorrow. We often don't think about, we think because God knows everything that he doesn't feel anything. That's not true. God feels. And we need to understand that when we sin, God is, it says he was grieved to his heart. When we think about sin, we know that, you know, sin is kind of, it's bad for us because it actually makes us more miserable. We think it'll make us more happy, but it actually makes us miserable. So sin is bad for us. We also know that when we sin, we can hurt other people and we need to come to grips with that. But at the end of the day, we need to understand that the reason why we got to avoid sin is because sin grieves God and it pains him to his heart. David said against you and you only have I sinned. He sinned against Bathsheba. He for sure sinned against Uriah. He, he sinned against his whole nation. But he knew at the end of the day that he had sinned against God. When you think about sin, when you confess your sin, are you just thinking about yourself? About the other people? Or are you thinking about how God feels about your sin? So we're, we're invited to understand God's pain in verse 6. And then from God's pain, we move to God's plan in verse seven. God says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals are creep and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. So God's plan is to blot out. He's going to judge the whole planet. But just as we see that God's judgment on Adam and Eve also came with mercy. They didn't die right away. Adam got to live for like 900 years. And he covered their shame. He, he had a sacrifice and covered them with animal skin. There was judgment. They were kicked out of Eden and they were going to die. But there was also mercy. And even with Cain, he was judged but the, God put that mark on him, whatever it was, and God promised to avenge him. With God's judgment, there is always mercy. And we see that in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here's the fifth and final thing we need to remember. The most important thing that we need to remember before we die is that you can find favor with God. Noah found favor with God. We know from Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, that Noah was also sinful and that Noah was sinful and the thoughts of his heart were evil, even from his youth. So it's not that Noah was perfect, that he was better than the other people, but Noah had favor. Noah had seen the kindness of God. God had chosen to show Noah favor. When the Old Testament was being translated into Greek 300 years before Christ, when they translated this passage, they, they translated the word favor with the Greek word charis, which is used all over the New Testament. You can hardly read a page in the New Testament without the word charis coming up. It's the word grace. You can find favor with God. You can find grace with God. 
death is what we deserve, but God graciously doesn't give us what we deserve. And we, we talked at, at the very outset, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, the reality of death because of Adam. But now Romans 5 tells us about the reality of grace and life because of Christ. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Sin came into the world through one man and one man's act of disobedience. That's Adam. And life has come into the world through one man's act of obedience, and that is Christ. One is, a, is, is death and judgment. The other is grace and life. And so the grace and the mercy of God comes through so clearly at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because what happened? We, we said it at the beginning. And he died. He died. He died instead of us. He lived the life that none of us could live. And he died the death that all of us deserve to die. And he died. He bore the punishment that all of us deserve for our sin. So that just as death reigned through Adam, new life can reign through Christ. Because loved ones, the truth is, we deserve to be blotted out like it says in verse 7. But instead we're born again. We deserve to be flooded with the waters of God's wrath and instead we are flooded with the life-giving waters of salvation. We deserve death, but we've been given new life. We deserve condemnation, but have been given justification. We deserve hell, but have been given heaven. We deserve judgment, but have been given forgiveness. Loved ones, amen. You can find favor with God. His grace is available to you at the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that although we have all wandered from you and every thought of our heart is so often only evil and continually apart from you, I thank you that although we deserve to die, you died in our place and suffered as our substitute so that we, although we are sinners separated from you, deserving to die, we are recipients of your grace and of your mercy. God, we love you and we worship you. We pray, Lord God, that you would move by the power of your Holy Spirit, God. Help us to understand the reality of death so that we can truly live. Help us to understand the reality of our death, but God, help us to understand even more the reality of the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, so that in understanding our death and understanding his death, we would truly know what it means to live. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.